Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Turn to Mark 9, 14 to 29, right where we were just a minute ago when Jordan read this passage for us. If you remember from what we talked about last week, right before this, um, what described what Peter, James, and John witnessed, the, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. They got a glimpse of what Jesus would look like as that risen he lives, resurrected uh, king, reigning king, what it will look like in glory, what Jesus will look like. And um, at the end of that event, Jesus brought down those three disciples back down the mountain, and they joined the other nine as uh, Jesus continued on in ministry, on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross, on his way to that empty tomb we just sung about. And this section of scripture that we read earlier and that we're going to study together now here in Mark 9, 14 to 29, it gives us the account of Jesus delivering a young fella from demon possession. Now, we've seen Jesus do this repeatedly in the past uh, nine chapters. We've even seen him giving his disciples the ability to do this. He sent them out on that first mission trip, and he gave them power over evil and clean spirits. And they actually, they cast out many, it said. Um, but, so th- this is very similar. We, we've seen this happen before in, in Mark. Here's another instance of Jesus delivering somebody from demon possession. But while there's similarities with those earlier deliverances, there's also some very distinguishable differences in this account. So many things God wants to teach us here in this passage. And this morning, we're going to learn what sin can do, what religion is incapable of doing, and then the life-transforming, God-glorifying things that faith can do. We already read, but before we study this together, uh, verse by verse, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Ask his blessing on this time right now. Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit here is here, present in the life of every single believer. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would illuminate the truth of this passage to strengthen our faith, um, to help us realize what sin can do. Uh, what, a, what a source of power that would be in our battle against temptation. God, help us to also know what mere religion cannot do, but then help us to see the whole point of this passage of the amazing things that faith in your amazing grace can do. If there's one here uh, or might be listening on the radio that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that this would be the day that you deliver them uh, from what sin is doing to their life and what it will ultimately do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start in verse 17, actually, this morning. We're going to come back to verses 14 to 16 in our, our second point here. But uh, verses 17 to 22 really describe what sin can do. What sin can do. Uh, and sin causes a destroyed world. That's what it does. Verse 17 tells us that a man 
came to Jesus with a really horrible circumstance when you read all of the descriptions here. Uh, He needed Christ's help with this. His son had what verse 17 uh, refers to as a dumb spirit. He was unable to speak. Uh, This man's son was demon-possessed. It didn't just affect him spiritually. It even had physical ramifications as well. This man couldn't speak. As the King James Version puts it, he had a dumb or a mute spirit. And we find out later that he also couldn't hear as well. And the father grows into greater detail in verse 18 about how this demon afflicted his son. Let's read verses 17 and 18. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he takes him and tears him, and he foameth and he gnashes with his teeth and he pineth away, it means become rigid. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. All right, so this demonic, this evil uh, spirit affected this young boy so terribly. Uh, destroyed, really destroying this young man's life, and not just that, but his father's, and, and probably many other people who loved him and were close to him. Do you understand that this is what sin can do? This is what sin does. It destroys. Now, Satan never presents it that way when he tempts you to sin, does he? He doesn't ever tell you that. Instead, he tells us that yielding to sin will bring us comfort. It might bring us joy and happiness and satisfaction. Uh, It's what we deserve. He might say it's what we need. That God wouldn't want us to not be happy. So just do it. You need it. You deserve it. And it will make you happy. Well, in the history of humanity, that's never once been the case. Sin might bring momentary pleasure. Hebrews 11.25 tells us that the pleasures of sin are fun for a season, but always, 100% of the time, sin ends in destruction. There's never once been a single exception. And better proof than the history of humanity, our combined human experience, is a record of revelation, what God's Word says sin will do. And this is how it presents sin. God always, he tells us from Genesis to Revelation that sin is a destroyer. It always leads to death and destruction. See, God gives you the whole story. I mean, he tells you, Hebrews eleven twenty five. It is fun for a season, but then it ends in destruction and death. Satan doesn't do that. He does just the opposite. He only focuses on the brief momentary pleasure that might temporarily come when we yield to temptation. He never wants to Satan tell us what will happen soon after It's destruction. It's death. And we see that here in Mark this morning. I want to jump ahead to verses 20 to 22 because the father at the request of Jesus goes into even greater detail about the destruction of his world because of sin. It says in verse 20, and when they brought him unto him and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. He had, you know, like a convulsing type of reaction when they brought this young man to Jesus. Verse 21, and he asked his father, Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. Um, In verse 21, do you see how long? This destruction went on in this young man's life. That's another lie that Satan will tell you about sin. So often he says, just do it once. It's not that serious. You can always ask for forgiveness afterwards if it's not the happiness you had hoped for. But then once once you've done it, this is what Satan does. He turns the tables on you. And he says, well, you've done it once. Might as well keep doing it. This is who you are. Do it again. You can't help but keep on sinning. 
And what does verse 22 say that this evil spirit's intent was for this young man's life? It says right there, oftentimes they cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. That's sin's purpose. That's sin's intent. What Satan wants to achieve by getting us to yield to temptation. I hope you understand that is always Satan's intent in sin. It's always sin's purpose to destroy you. Church, we live in a world that is being destroyed by sin, isn't it? It's being destroyed by sin. And just like in this account right here, it's coming for our kids. It is. And the church needs to stand up and be on guard and fight for our children, just like this young man's father did, just like Jesus does here. You know, sin, sins that used to be the sins of adults, they're now the sins of, of very young kids. They shouldn't have been the sins of adults either. But it's tragic. The devil wants so badly to get a hold of them while they're young. I mean, just think, um, children exposed to things that they never were exposed to years ago, tempted by those things, sometimes in bondage to them already at a very young age. We got children today, even before they get to high school, uh, addicted to things that are destroying them, or at least on their way there. We've got young men and young women swayed by the destructive worldviews of what's popular in a truly demonic culture. This isn't like, oh, this doesn't happen anymore. Our culture is truly demonic, what's popular nowadays. We got young men and young women addicted to pornography because it's so easily accessible, and it's destroying their lives. It's impacting their future lives. It has, it has ramifications on their marriage decades from now, what they're going through, what they're being tempted by. We've got children headed towards substance abuse and addiction, Satan trying to destroy their lives right from the start. And because Satan and sin and this evil world, they're starting early to do our kids harm, what should the church's response be? Well, we had better start early to doing them good, shouldn't we? We need to have them here in church. We need to have them access the means of grace, God's word, teaching from their community of faith, their brothers and sisters in Christ, their spiritual fathers and mothers. They need that. They need to see it at home. We better win young people to Jesus as early as we can because the devil's trying to get them early too. We need to teach our kids the gospel at home. We need to teach them God's word. Let, and I'm not just saying like, this, you need to be teaching your kids God's word. You, you are your children's first pastor and youth pastor. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, that you are. You, you have them way more than I do. I wish I had them as much as, as you. They need you. And they don't need you just to teach this in the home, they need to see it lived out in the home. Do you understand what I am saying? They need to see the gospel in action in your home. They need to see mom and dad, two sinners. No amens. All right. But two sinners, aren't we? Aren't we all sinners? And they need to see grace from husband to wife and wife to husband and, and mom and dad to children. They need to see what, that's the gospel, is it not? They need standards. But they also need to see the gospel of grace in life, real time, played out at home. They need to see that what we profess, we actually possess, that what we believe is real. 
That this is where joy and satisfaction and everything good is found. And when you do that, you'll show them that sin can't provide any of that. Break the power. Break the power of sin with the gospel that's lived out before your children. And our church needs to commit to help you do that, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. It's a destroyed world. Sin also causes a desperate world. Look at the end of verse 18 after he describes the uh, gnashing of teeth, the foaming at the mouth. And, and this, this uh, father, he brings, this desperate father, brings his son to the disciples. And what does it say there? They couldn't do anything. They could not. This, this man was, was desperate. Look at the end of verse 22. He, he pleads with Jesus after telling him the situation. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Please help us, Jesus. And we're living in a day that a world that today it's being destroyed. But, but look, don't lose heart. Don't give up, Christian. In fact, take courage because it is a desperate world. We, we actually have what they need. We have here in the gospel, what, we have the one thing, the only thing that can pull people from destruction and out of desperation. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see this dad's desperation here as he cries out to Jesus. It's, it's so necessary for a desperate world, desperate homes, a world that's experiencing destruction, a world that's headed to death. It's so necessary that we point them in their desperation to Jesus Christ. It's so vital that as Jesus followers, we have the compassion of Jesus. That's what this father pleads with Jesus for here in verse 22. Please have compassion on me. And followers of Jesus need to have that too so that we can point them out of this way of destruction. The gospel is our only hope. That's what Jesus gives them. It's the only thing that can. I also want to look at what religion cannot do. Let's go back up to verses 14 and 16, 14 to 16. It says, and when he came to his disciples, Jesus comes down from the mountain that he was transfigured on with the three. He saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. You know, um, what we've got here in verses 14 to 16, it's a sad thing. This is what religion can't do. And the reason it can't do it is it so perfectly describes here a distracted church. Jesus comes down from that mountain. What an experience, a mountaintop experience. He goes down here with those three disciples. They join the other nine. And what does Jesus find his other nine disciples doing here? It says they were being questioned by the scribes. All right. Um, a large crowd, a great multitude. And his disciples and his scribes, and they're in an argument. That's what the Hebrew means. Therefore, King James renders it question. Um, every, about every English, modern English translation, arguing. Now, please bear in mind that, that from the verses we've already looked at this morning about this desperate father and his demon-possessed son, those two individuals are right there, right there when all of this is going on, right there in this crowd. Uh, this dad had come to Jesus' disciples. He had come to Jesus' followers for help to get out of the destruction that sin was causing. In desperation, he came. Verse 18, at the end, it says, they couldn't help him. I don't know what these disciples were arguing about. I don't really care. And I don't think Jesus does either, because he doesn't tell us what they were arguing about. If it was something important, he would have told us what it is. There are things we need to argue about. There is truth that we need to take a stand for. But I don't think that's what's going on here. All I know is that here are disciples of Jesus, Jesus' followers, and here are religious leaders of that day, not Jesus' followers, but what we might regard as good, moral, religious people. And this 
desperate dad is also here. And his demon-possessed son, bent on destruction, and they're there pleading for help from the disciples. And what are the religious people doing here? They're arguing. They're arguing. It's pretty sad, isn't it? When there's such a need. Look, they were commissioned, Jesus' disciples. We are commissioned as Jesus' disciples to be compassionate. We're also empowered with the gospel to affect change in people's life. But here we find them very distracted. They're unable to help. They're really not worth a whole lot, honestly, are they? In the second part of verse 18, we see that defeated church. You remember what the dad said to Jesus about the disciples' inability to deliver his son from sin, from this path of destruction that he was on. It says they could not. Now listen, Jesus had given his disciples power over evil spirits. Back in Mark chapter 6, we studied that probably months ago. But when he sent them out on a mission trip, he gave them power to heal. He gave them power to cast out demons. And it actually says that they did. And Mark 6, 13 says they cast out many demons. So they had done it before, but they couldn't this time. Why not? And we're told at the end of this passage, verse 29, what the problem was. The problem was faithlessness. It required faith. It required faith on the part of the dad. It required faith on the part of the disciples. It required them to not depend on themselves, to not depend on the success they might have previously had in ministry, like on that mission trip, but only on God. Totally in faith to depend on God, on his power, on the Holy Spirit's power. It's always on God. It's always by faith. It, it required them to be determined to not be distracted. And look, when we get more passionate about arguing and disputing than we do about being used of God to do this work of deliverance, pulling people from destruction, pulling them from desperation, well, yeah, we're going to find ourselves powerless to affect real change. And we can't help but become a defeated church. There's churches all over this area, all over this nation, all over this world, that because they refuse to be passionate about what the one they worship is passionate about, well, the sign outside their door, I don't know whatever it says, but it could say what the end of verse 18 says. They could not. First, they could not, church. Calvary, they could not, church. What a sad, sad statement. And I, this is my prayer this morning, and I invite you to join me. God, save Dublin First Baptist Church from that. I don't think that's a condition, but it's something we've got to be on guard against always. Lord, if there's in any way, if that is true of us here this morning, we confess and we repent of that. Save us from such a description. A defeated church, a distracted church, we want no part of that. Because you know what it is? It's a sad eulogy is what it is. They could not. It's an extract from an obituary of a church that's either dead or on its way to being dead, unless it quits arguing, unless it gets passionate about what Jesus Christ is passionate about. I want to go out on a high note tonight, or this morning, right? <laughs> that's necessary. It's here in God's Word. But let me tell you what faith can do, because that's really the point of this whole passage here. Listen, there is hope. If we'll give the hope that we have, there is hope for a world that's spent on destruction because we have it. We have hope for desperate people. We have hope for people who are on the, right now being destroyed by sin. We, we even have hope for a distracted and defeated church if we will be about what our hope is about. And it's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. 
Uh, look at this de- demoniac. He, he's transformed. <laughs> In verse 19, uh, Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. Well, it's clear in verse 19, again, what the problem was. Jesus says in verse 29, but he also says it here. What's their problem? They are a faithless generation. So the problem is faithlessness. Jesus, the great physician, he diagnoses the problem right away, and he prescribes uh, the prescription that will take care of it. And I love that last phrase in verse 19. What does he say to do to this needy dad, desperate dad, and this this kid who's on his way to destruction. What does he say to do? Bring him unto me. Bring him unto me. What should we do in response to a world that's been on destruction? How do we help a loved one who's in bondage to sin? What hope can we give a desperate world? What hope is there for a distracted and defeated church? End of verse 18, 19. Bring him, bring him to Jesus. Bring him to Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. It says, and they brought him unto him. They brought this demon-possessed young man to Christ at the end of verse 22. The father pleads with Jesus. We read that earlier. If you can do anything, Jesus, if you can do anything, please have compassion. Help us. There, this right here, these verses, if we need to learn anything from this passage, I believe it's right here. Is what Jesus teaches us when he turns this man's words around on him. What did that man say? Jesus, if you can do anything, please help us. And how did Jesus respond in verse 23? Jesus says to him, if you can believe. (laughs) If you can believe, anything is possible. See, this desperate dad, he had the wrong if. The problem wasn't with Jesus whether or not Jesus could do anything. I mean, this is God. This, this is the creator. Over and over again, we've studied together. When people brought others to Jesus who were sick and needed healing, who were demon-possessed and needed deliverance, who were dead and needed to be raised to life, could Jesus do it? Yeah. Did Jesus do it? Yeah. So the problem is not with Jesus. It's God we're dealing with here. The if about Jesus is not a concern. The if problem is with this man, with the disciples. It's with you and I. If you can believe. The problem is a faith issue here. When Jesus answers the man's request this way, the desperate dad, it says he straightway, he cries out with tears. In verse 25, he says, Lord, I believe, (laughs) but help, help my unbelief. Such a bold declaration of faith, that first part. I believe, Lord. But my belief isn't perfect. <laughs> my faith is not perfect. I, I, we won't take every hand-raised vote, but I, I, would, I would gather that every single person here, if we would have to say, is our faith per- perfect? Perfect? None of us could raise our hand. But do we have faith? Yeah. And so can we cry out like this desperate dad does? I believe, Jesus And help my unbelief, a bold declaration of faith, but also a bold declaration of weakness. That we're weak without him. And that's a takeaway I don't want you to miss here. Please listen to this. The strength of our faith is not in the strength of our faith. It's not. The strength of our faith is in the strength of the object of our faith. You see the difference there? Your faith will only be strong or will only be weak depending on where you place it 
And you might think, I don't have a very strong faith. I've said it to my wife before. She said it to me before. I wish my faith was stronger. I want, just like this man, I want, I desire my faith to be stronger. But the strength of your faith is entirely dependent upon the strength of the object of your faith. And where is he putting it right now? He's putting it solely in Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing. See, this man's faith, it wasn't mustered up by Jesus. Jesus isn't like, you just need to have stronger faith, buddy. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. When Jesus turns his words around on him and says, if you can believe in me, well, anything is possible. When Jesus does that, he's showing him where his faith should be directed. It's not a pep rally here. The strength of our faith is always in the strength of our object of our faith. And let me tell you something. When you place your faith in an omnipotent, almighty, sovereign, good, gracious, loving God, well, you can't have a stronger faith, Christian. You can't. That's the strongest faith you could possibly have. And you're going to see, when you do that, you're going to see and you're going to experience things that you never thought possible. Just like this man here. Just what Jesus promised here. In verses 25 to 27, it tells us that in response to this man's bold and humble faith, Jesus rebuked the demon to come out of him and never enter him again. And if you read those verses, 25 to 27, boy, that demon made a scene on the way out, didn't he? The sin does that. It's destructive. Don't forget that. It's destructive. Satan don't want to lose ground. But church, when you bring people to Jesus, he can't help. He can't help but leave. He don't have much of an option. Verses 28, 29, the disciples are taught uh, here. It says, And when he was come into the house, Jesus, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind come, come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Maybe the disciples were a little embarrassed, and that's why they waited till they got in the house to ask Jesus privately. A little embarrassed why they couldn't cast the demon out. I'm guessing that's the case. Especially since Jesus' earlier statement in verse 19. Faithless generation. It was directed at them as much as it was anybody else who was there and heard it. But Jesus used this opportunity here in verses 20 and 29 and their inquisitiveness to teach them why. Why they couldn't do it. But really he already had. The problem was their faithlessness. He said it in verse 19. He says it here in verse 29. Now, a lot is made of this answer in verse 29, and depending on your, what modern translation you have and what text it's based off of, uh, here in the King James, it says, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. Some versions just say prayer. Other gospels say prayer and, and fasting. Uh, I don't want to get hung up on seeing these things as magical acts, prayer and fasting, because really, they're just simply expressions of faith, aren't they? Isn't that what you're here for this morning? You came here to express your faith to God. And prayer and fasting, just like Bible reading, just like serving the Lord, they're just expressions of faith. Now, they are serious expressions of faith. Most of us don't fast uh, every other day. We use it when we are, are needing something and when we're desperate like this dad does, when we want to know God's will desperately. So when our prayers intensify, and that's what Jesus is trying to say here, when they intensify because we want to see God move some mountain in our lives, when, when we're willing to give up a meal or maybe even a day of meals or maybe something else, it doesn't always have to be food, it could be social media, something like that. And here's the key thing, and replace it with time with the Lord 
in prayer and in Bible study and seeking his will and listening to him. When, when we do that with a purpose of expressing our faith in him, when we do it crying out like this desperate dad did here in our passage this morning, well, yeah, that's, that's a serious expression of faith. But it's not prayer. It's not fasting. It's, it's not anything we do necessarily that results in this. It's not, it's not the expressions of our faith that do it. It's God's grace that does it. It's the only thing that does it. But it's our faith in his grace. That's the reason. That's God's design. Look, I do not know why God chose us to be saved by his grace and, and to experience good from his hand by faith. I don't know why he did that. The best thing I've been able to come up with is, is this. I know he did. <laughs> And I think that he did it because better than any other thing in this whole entire world, it does this. It highlights his worth, not mine, not yours. It it highlights his power, not mine or yours because we don't have any. It highlights his glory and his magnificence and his benevolence, his goodness to us. It also highlights our desperate neediness. That's what faith does. And I'm good with that. I hope you're good with that too because it's a blessing to highlight all those things about our God. It's a blessing. It should be more of he. It should be less of me. Look, if there's one here today and you've never asked Jesus to be your savior, you've never uh, asked him to forgive your sins because of what he did on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins, if you've never done that, I invite you to do it today. Maybe the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart and he wants you to believe. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be born again. We're going to have a time of invitation here in a moment, but you don't have to wait for that. Call out to him. Cry out to him now. It tells you on the back of our bulletin what it means to be saved on our website. Ask Pastor Tommy, myself, someone here. We want you to know for sure that you've trusted Christ as Savior and that you have a home in heaven. Christian, are you passionate about what Jesus is passionate about? Do you follow him with exclusive, singular Passionate focus, exemplifying his compassion like he had here to see other people delivered from a world of destruction, delivered from their desperation. Please don't get lost playing church, going through motions, doing church. Definitely, please, definitely don't allow you and your fellow believers to be distracted with disputings and arguings. Don't allow that to result in a defeated church. We have access to his promised power. That's what we've learned today. When we join this desperate dad here in this passage and we cry out to Jesus, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, God is going to honor that prayer. God loves that prayer. He's going to answer it just like he did here in Mark 9. And you're going to get to see what faith can do. A faith like that, it is a faith that, like Jesus promised, the gates of hell cannot prevail against that. So where are you placing it? If it's in something weak, you have weak faith. If it's in partially in God, partially in Christ, and partially in something else, it's not going to be very strong. But if it's in your omnipotent God, if it's in your sovereign King, Jesus Christ, well, you can't possibly have a stronger faith than that. How, how is your strong faith being expressed? Do you find yourself desperate this morning? I don't know your situation. Maybe there's somebody here and you're wanting so badly to experience deliverance from something. Or maybe it's not even about you. Maybe it's about somebody you love, you care about. Sin is trying to destroy you, your family. 
look, sometimes there is a kind, just like Jesus said here, there is a kind that requires a strong faith that's expressed in a strong, serious way, in intense prayer, in humble, desperate, dependent. I don't care who sees me. I don't care who hears about this devotion to God. Maybe a declaration that Jesus, you're all I need, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast this week. I'm going to intensify my prayer life this week. I'm going to commit this morning to spend more time in your words so I can hear from you and, and experience the deliverance that comes from it. Maybe it's by hitting the altar this morning. I'm more concerned about you hitting the altar Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. So as Tommy comes and he leads us in a song of invitation, however the Holy Spirit is using the Word of God to call you to respond today, I just ask that you would obey.